Good morning, UBC. How's everybody doing? Good. Awesome. Well, hey, uh, like Phil said, my name is indeed Connor Tate, and I have the great privilege of serving both in the deacon ministry as well as in the adult Sunday school ministry. Uh, my wife and I have been attending UBC for uh, really coming up on three and a half years. We are just stoked at all that God is up to here, and it's a blessing to be able to open up God's word with you this morning. I want to just start really by echoing uh, Wayne's prayer uh, and just extending um, my gratitude for the servicemen and the service women who have given their lives for the preservation of the Constitution and the liberties that we uh, are afforded here in this country, uh, including just being able to open up uh, the Bible and, and host such a service as this. And so if you are a family member of, of someone that would fall into that, uh, I, I thank you and commend you and uh, pray for you this morning. One thing I always appreciate when I hear someone speak for the first time or, or someone who speaks rather infrequently is if they take a few moments to share a little bit about their personal testimony in Jesus Christ. Um, I did not grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a home I would characterize as religious and, and spiritual, uh, maybe even nominally Christian, but I did not have a saving personal relationship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and that characterized uh, most of my upbringing. Additionally, um, I have never met my father before, even still to this day, and that always caused me a lot of anger, a lot of just bitterness in my heart, and that really began to skew uh, who I believed God is, and uh, that really manifested itself in a lot of sinful, rebellious behaviors. I moved through high school and college, um, abusing drugs and alcohol, um, was very prone to temper, um, was depressed, uh, even suicidal at times. Uh, and just so empty and void of life. And by God's grace, as I attended the University of Dayton uh, through the influence of the Navigators ministry there and some, some uh, born-again believers there who really began to befriend me and welcome me in, um, I end up attending a Christian conference uh, up in Marengo, Ohio, uh, Friday, October 3rd through the 5th of 2014. And that opening night, uh, the Word of God went out. It was John chapter 4 and Psalm 42, talking about the streams of living water that Christ offers all who repent and believe in him. And I was so aware of my sinfulness that night, I recognized that I was a broken sinner, uh, separated and alienated from God by my sin, and only by his grace and the atonement of Jesus Christ could my penalty and debt be paid. And so by God's grace, I surrendered my life to the Lord that night and was born again. Um, since that time, God has done so much in my life, I don't have time to recount everything. Um, it has not been a cakewalk. It has not been easy. There's been some very, very dark moments, um, but nevertheless, the Lord has been faithful through it all. Uh, I've been blessed with being able to serve as a volunteer chaplain at the Montgomery County Jail for coming up on seven years. I've had the opportunity to preach to thousands of men over those years. Um, I've been blessed to be able to go back to school uh, down at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and uh, earn my master's degree down there in 2019. Uh, as well as the, the greatest blessing apart from salvation um, is my, uh, my wife, Megan, and um, the blessing that she is. And we'll be celebrating our three-year anniversary this August and welcoming our first child in July. So we covet your prayers, uh, and we're just grateful um, for the opportunity to be here at UBC. If you got a copy of the scriptures, uh, please open up to uh, 2 Thessalonians. That's where we'll be today. And I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The text reads this way, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, 
and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Let's take a moment and pray. Father God, thank you so much for this time today. Thank you for waking each one of us up, Lord, to be here, to worship you, to hear the proclamation of your true and trustworthy word. Lord, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing in our own power. So I'm asking, Lord, and just imploring you that you would send forth your spirit to meet with us today, O Lord. Don't pass us by this morning, God. Would you come in power, come in conviction, come in might, O Lord, transforming our minds, changing our hearts to, to behold the beauty of who you are and what your son has done. Lord, if there's anybody in here, as Phil prayed earlier, Lord, that doesn't know you in a saving personal relationship, I pray that today would be the day, oh God, that their eyes are open, Lord, that they would see you for who you are and, and come running, Lord, into your loving arms to find forgiveness and grace and salvation. Lord, we pray for those of us who do, God, that this word would be transformative, that would be fruitful, and God, that this time would just be blessed and anointed, oh God, but you. Let it let it not be in vain. And so, Lord, we surrender to you this morning. Meet with us, Lord. We praise you. We thank you. We adore you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. There's nothing like a good sequel, is there? Just a quick glimpse at some of the classics like Toy, Toy Story 2, Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan, or even Shrek 2, highlight the genius of a well-produced sequel. But unfortunately, across the landscape of cinema, there are actually very few very successful sequels. They're surprisingly hard to come by and even more difficult to produce. Why is this, though? Well, in September of last year, TVOverMind.com released an article titled Five Reasons Why Movie Sequels Are Worse Than the Original. The author argued in the first reason that it's because not all main actors tend to come back sometimes. Certainly an accurate evaluation. Secondly, he said that different directors can have very different visions for the storyline. That certainly can cause confusion for viewers. Thirdly, he said that the story often gets watered down. He writes, this is often seen when movies go past the sequel and into a third, fourth, fifth, and so on, inevitably repeating the same material over and over again. Fourthly, he said that there's often too big of a time gap between the original and the sequel. He says when more than a decade passes between the original and the sequel, the problems arise with coming up with a believable story that then can connect the two and getting the audience re-excited about the idea again. Certainly true. His fifth reason, though, was that studios often believe they have a cash cow that they can keep milking with viewers when they actually don't. Certainly true of many movies. Well, quite the intriguing assessment, but... Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, we're actually going to seek to flip the tables a little bit today regarding sequels. Because today we're going to look at a sequel where all the main characters come back, where the unchanging vision of the director remains steadfast, where reality is presented just as it is and the story never gets watered down, where there's actually only a few month time gap between events, and where the integrity of the motivations and intentions of the author are pure and authenticated. In fact, today we're going to get a sneak preview into one of the greatest literary sequels ever penned. 
If you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that we took the, the, took the first three months of this year to expositionally walk through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Well, this morning marks the first week of our sequel series through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And the big theme we want to present and highlight as we move forward is that as Christians, we are called to stand unshaken until Christ comes. That this letter, along with the rest of the New Testament, unequivocally present Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God who is coming back again to judge all men and lay forth the totality of his kingdom on earth. And in light of that sure and certain reality, we are called to conduct ourselves and live a certain way. And so as we move forward in this book, we're going to be unpacking that very theme. As we do with any introductory message to a particular book here at UBC, it's important that we spend a few moments laying the contextual groundwork for this letter. We believe here at UBC that this book, the Bible, is the inspired inerrant, authoritative word of God, that all 66 books in it are indeed that, but that these books were written by men empowered by the Holy Spirit at particular points in history to particular people living in a particular cultural and contextual setting. And so in order for us to rightly interpret and apply God's word here in 2021, we must first ask a couple questions such as, what did the biblical author intend and in his meaning as he wrote to the original recipients of a particular letter? And so we're going to spend a few moments just kind of taking a detour away from 2 Thessalonians to the book of Acts to set this contextual foundation up for the rest of this series, okay? So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, put a bookmark or a finger or something in 2 Thessalonians and turn with me to Acts 17, okay? We're going to camp out here for a few moments and lay this stage. If we go ahead and put the chart up on the screen, I really want to give a redemptive historical kind of overview of this uh, book and how we got where we are currently today. And so most scholars believe that Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection was about 33 AD. We can read about that in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And shortly after that, we see a great persecutor, a great antagonist of the faith by the name of Saul of Tarsus, actually get converted to Christianity and become a Christian and ultimately become a a powerhouse missionary for Jesus. And so this this gentleman, Saul of Tarsus, is going to have his name changed to Paul, and he's going to begin to embark on these missionary journeys. The first missionary journey he embarks on is about 46 to 47 AD, and the second missionary journey is about 49 to 51 AD. We could go ahead and put the map up on the screen. About halfway through this second missionary journey, okay, right at about 50 AD, Paul and the team of of co-laborers consisting of Silas and Timothy. And by the way, Silas is just a a, a different name for the same guy named Silvanus in our text today. But they're going to make their way west at the top left of your screen across Macedonia. And in Acts chapter 16, we see that they're going to be imprisoned and miraculously released from Philippi and start making their way west through Amphipolis, through Apollonia, and eventually arriving at a city called Thessalonica. Thessalonica would have been a very prominent city in Paul's day. It was, had prime geographic placement for both sea and land travel routes. It was economically robust. It was politically favored by the Roman Empire. In fact, just about six or seven years before Paul and his team arrived in Thessalonica, the city had just regained senatorial status from the Roman Empire. 
And this is a big deal because previously, for about three decades, they had only new imperial status. Imperial status meant that the city was much more regulated, much more kind of big brother-ish from the Roman Empire. They didn't have the, the freedoms and the liberty that senatorial status afforded them. And so previously, when, when they achieved and, and received this senatorial status, they coveted it. They did not want anyone or anything putting that in jeopardy. And that's significant here, and we'll look at that in a moment. Additionally, the, um, uh, the, the, the city was very religiously pluralistic. It had cults, it had pagan gods worshipped, it has a presence of Judaism. It even had deification of Roman leaders such as Caesar or Augustus. And so overall, this is the, the setting that Paul and his team are walking into as they share Jesus. And we pick up in Acts 17 where Paul has arrived in Thessalonica and begins to proclaim Jesus is king in the synagogues to Jews. And we see that some Jews do indeed come to faith, but, but even more Gentiles are also coming to faith. And as Christianity is growing in Thessalonica, it, it begins to really kind of arouse the, the jealousy from some of these Jewish and religious leaders. They don't like it. They want to stamp this out. And certainly the, the disturbance and the talk that this has created, they, they are very concerned about potentially such a disturbance arising to where they might be put back in imperial status, something they did not not want. And so uh, we're going to see that, that they're going to actually seek to kidnap and arrest some of these early Christians and put them before some of these leaders. But unfortunately to them, they can't find Paul and Silas. And so what happens is this house church leader named Jason ends up kind of taking the fall for him. And, and he's arrested and put before the crowds. And he's got some other uh, early believers with him. And they accuse them of two things. Number one is disturbing the peace. And number two is defying the decrees of Caesar. We see that in Acts chapter 17, 1 through 9. And then, again, this would have been a huge deal because this potentially would have put them back under imperial status and it actually was in violation as they accused them, was not actually, but they accused them of it being in violation of a decree sent down by a Roman Empire named Augustus in 11 AD. And Augustus said that he, uh, anyone um, who for, uh, predicts or discusses the death or secession of a Roman ruler is to be punished and even possibly be put to death. And so these leaders in Thessalonica, they begin to accuse the Christians uh, who are saying Jesus is king as actually saying death to Caesar. And they're defying the decree of Caesar, even though that was not their intention to pit Jesus as some sort of political tyrant uh, that was going to overthrow Caesar's kingdom. But nevertheless, these are the accusations put forth against them. As we can see, as we come to the end of this kind of portion of Acts, um, Jason end up, uh, ends up posting bail for these early Christians. They are released. And because it's just so much heat in the city, uh, Paul and Silas deem it best to leave and flee and make their way to Berea. And that is what happens as you move through Acts. Well, over the course of the next couple months, Timothy is kind of going to act as this, this, this correspondent, this messenger between these young green Thessalonian Christians and Paul. And he's going to bring back numerous reports about the status and welfare of the Thessalonian congregation. And so we see as we move through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians that, that overall Timothy's reports are overwhelmingly encouraging. The church is healthy. The church is growing. The church is growing in love towards one another. The church is evangeli excuse me, evangelistically zealous for Jesus. 
Although it should be stated that Timothy, in no unclear terms, does present some problems and some errors that exist in the church as well. And Paul's going to write a word of correction a few times as we move forward in this book about some of those errors. But overall, Timothy brings an encouraging word to Paul. And Paul is stoked. Paul has these letters and he writes a word of commendation in these opening verses of 2 Thessalonians, thanking God for the growth, praising these Thessalonians for such commendatory behavior. And so as we move into our text today, I want to put the big idea on the screen. I want to put the main thesis of this message today. If you don't remember anything else, let it be this. And that is that a church worthy of commendation is a church worthy of imitation. A church worthy of commendation is a church worthy of imitation. And the big question I want to propose as well as show you the answer in this very text is what does a scripturally commendable church look like? What does a scripturally commendable church look like? Because I, I believe that as, as a church here at UBC, of God's local expression of his body, we are called to imitate the commendable characteristics of a church as seen in scripture. And so I want to give you today five characteristics of a scripturally commendable church. I want to give you today five characteristics of a scripturally commendable church from these four verses. And then I want to ask you Four application questions at the end as we conclude our time. Let's dive in, shall we? The first characteristic of a scripturally commendable church is that it's a church that's birthed in God and Christ. It's a church that's birthed in God and Christ. Take a look at 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 1 with me. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. Did you catch that? These Thessalonians are in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul is communicating here is that he is confident. He is certain that these Thessalonian believers have been authentically born again by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. That before they were dead in their sins, dead in their trespasses, but they have been raised unto life by the Holy Spirit. They have been regenerated. Paul is confident of it. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, we read, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Paul is recounting, Paul is recapping the moment and the occurrence that these Thessalonian believers received God's word, and he said it was powerful. It was authentic. It was the Holy Spirit bringing forth the full conviction that only he can bring. And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this is very important because this lays the foundation for the doctrine of the regenerate church. We here at UBC hold to this doctrine, and this doctrine says that unless one is authentically born again, unless one has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they are not a member of Christ's church. You can attend church, you can get baptized, you can participate in, in Christian functions, but in and of themselves, that does not make you a member of the church of Jesus Christ, but rather faith and repentance under working by the new birth does. And Paul is identifying and commending and praising God for this work that was evident in the Thessalonians. And this is important, brothers and sisters, because we must understand that there are indeed 
true churches and there are these false churches in the world today. Just because someone says that, that they're, they're a church and they've gathered together and they're, they're an organization or an entity or a group or an assembly or something and they're, they're using that label church does not mean that they're automatically a scripturally commendable church. There's true churches. There's false churches. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a false church. The Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses is a false church. The Unitarian Universalist Fellowship is a false church. The Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, or Pastafarianism, is a false church. The Unification Church, led by the late Reverend Sung Young Moon, is a false church. The Church of the Baha'i Faith, where all world religions are equal manifestations of God's divine revelation, is a false church. To be a church is to be an assembly of called out, born again believers in God and Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Sometimes we toss that word around in evangelical Christianity today, but we often don't define it. To be in Christ is to be redeemed in Jesus Christ, Romans 3.24. It's to be made alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.11. It's to be freed by the Spirit, Romans 8.2. It's to have no condemnation on you any longer, Romans 8.1. It's to be baptized into one body in Christ Jesus, Romans 12.5. It's to be set apart and made holy unto God in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.2. It's to be established in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.21. It's to have victory in Christ, 2 Corinthians 2.14. It's to be made a new creature, a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's to be restored and reconciled to the one true living God, 2 Corinthians 5.19. It's to be justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, in Christ, Galatians 2.16. It's to be adopted as a son or daughter of the Most High King Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.26. And it's to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.3, and I could go on. Brothers and sisters, to be in Christ is the greatest saving benefit of Jesus' atonement. And he grants all who put their faith, hope, and trust in him that benefit. The second characteristic, though, of a scripturally commendable church can be found in verse 2. And that is, it's a church that lives in God's grace and peace. It's a church that lives in God's grace and peace. Take your eyes to, to verse 2 there. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think sometimes in evangelical Christianity today, we can kind of have this surreptitious or covert notion that, uh, you know, God does this saving work when she applies grace to our life at the moment of salvation. And then we're kind of called just to, to live it out on our own. We're kind of called just to walk it out in our own power, create our own grace and peace in our lives through various means, even things of the world. And brothers and sisters, I just want to say that that's, that's antithetical to, to what the scriptures present. We're, we're, we're called into the fellowship of Christ and saved by grace. We're sustained by grace. We are called to live in God's grace and we will be taken home to glory by God's grace and God's grace alone. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12 in verse 11, Paul writes, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Who's doing the calling? God. Who's making us worthy? God. Who's enabling us to do this good and every work of faith? Whose power? God's. We are called to live in God's grace and peace daily. I couldn't help but be reminded of a verse in John chapter 15, verse 5, where Jesus says, I am the true vine. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Brothers and sisters, we are called to, to live in Christ, sustained by Christ, draw spiritual chlorophyll, so to speak, by Christ. Let me ask you, what, what, what can a branch do to bear fruit except abide in the vine? The answer is nothing. It has to abide in the vine. It must abide in the vine. And so too, we must have a daily diet of Jesus Christ in his word and live in his grace. To recognize that, that we don't have to be condemning ourselves. We don't have to stand under shame and guilt for past sins. But if we're in Jesus Christ, he has washed us and forgiven us and we can walk in liberty. The third characteristic, though, of a scripturally commendable church is that it's a church that's growing in their faith. It's a church that's growing in their faith. Take a look at the first half of verse 3 with me. It says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Paul is giving God glory, giving God thanks, because he recognizes that these Thessalonian believers have a growing, and not just a growing, but an abundantly growing faith. And this is really, really encouraging because this, this phrase, abundant growth, it actually doesn't mean from something to nothing. It means from something good to something greater. It means that there's already been growth present, but, but God wants us to fan that flame. Paul wants these Thessalonian believers to fan that flame of growth into something even more wonderful, more marvelous, more majestic, more glorifying to God. And I give God glory for the growth here at UBC because I believe God has something good here. But brothers and sisters, let us not fall into the ruse of complacency and just kind of thinking that God is okay with stagnancy when he's not. We're called to pursue a greater maturity in Christ. We're called collectively as a, as, as a church to pursue a greater and more wonderful growth for his glory. It also should be noted in this text that, that a growing faith doesn't mean a perfect faith. It doesn't mean a perfect church. We're going to see as we move through this book that Paul uh, actually spends a good amount of time in this letter correcting three major errors in this congregation. We're not going to flush these all out today. We will in subsequent weeks. But the three main errors uh, present in this church are, number one, the problem of evil. These Thessalonian believers struggle with the problem of evil. It's found in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. They were being persecuted. They were under trial by fire. And inevitably, they were thinking in their minds, God, if you're just, if you're good, well, why don't you do something? Bring some immediate relief here to us, O oh God. And Paul's going to provide some comfort and corrective teaching on that in those verses. Additionally, we see that the Thessalonians struggled with end times confusion regarding Christ's return. End times confusion regarding Christ's return. There was confusion about when Jesus was coming back. There was confusing about, uh, confusion about the events surrounding Jesus' return. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, Paul is going to provide some corrective teaching. Lastly, we see that there was laziness in the congregation. There was slothful believers who were mooching off of wealthier believers, likely due to end times confusion. Just a side sermon here, if, if there's any skepticism in your heart about the connection between doctrine and practice, perhaps this text speaks to avail you of any such notion. But brothers and sisters, we are called to press on to maturity, to pursue a greater wonderful growth, both individually as believers and collectively as a congregation. I'm thankful, I'm thankful to see UBC growing in faith. 
Fourthly, we see a fourth characteristic of a scripturally commendable church, and that is it's a church that's increasing in familial love. It's a church that's increasing in familial love. Take a look at the latter half of verse 3 with me. Again, Paul is giving thanks to God for these things, and it says, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul has got this encouraging report back from Timothy that the Thessalonian congregation, even under the trial that they were under, is loving one another radically, intensely, deeply. Additionally, we can see Paul use just such rich familial language all over these letters. We see him use the word our in the opening greeting, our God and Father, our Lord and Jesus Christ. It doesn't say my, it doesn't say your, it says ours together. Additionally, Paul's going to use the Greek word adelphoi, the word for brothers and sisters, in the thanksgiving, something that is unique to First and Second Thessalonians. I'm not going to say too much more about this point because, brothers and sisters, I really do believe that, that UBC has this as an area of strength. Maybe it's because I'm, I'm a deacon and I hear more reports of the, the needs being met, but I just want to share that, that praise God that we have we have deacons, we have members who are, are, are loving and meeting needs. I, I'm regularly hearing of, of meal trains being put forth. I'm regularly hearing of hospital visits being made. I regularly hear of <clears throat> excuse me, funeral arrangements being attended to. I regularly hear of, of prayers and just petitions being made for, for somebody who's struggling, financial needs met, whatever it may be. God is on the move through meeting the needs of believers and the familial love here at UBC. If there's further any doubt, I, I really would encourage you to attend some of our members' meetings. Attend some of our members' meetings. I, I have, not perfectly, but consistently the last two and a half, three years. And I can tell you that almost probably 80 to 90% of the time, you listen to why a prospective member or members uh, wants to join UBC, and you hear the same two things over and over again. The first is the expositional preaching at UBC. But the second reason is that the love and hospitality that those individuals or that individual felt as they walked in UBC. You hear that over and over again, and I give God glory for that, and I thank you all for that. But brothers and sisters, let us be intentional about continuing to doing that. Let us be intentional as the church grows numerically, as you know, some, a lot of the COVID restrictions are being lifted, and, and this summer actually will be a summer let us put forth energy to have a barbecue and invite somebody. If you see somebody just kind of new or looks peculiar or out of place here, perhaps it's their first time, introduce yourself. Seek to show that ever-increasing familial love. The fifth and final characteristic of a scripturally commendable church can be found in verse 4. And that is it's a church that's steadfast under persecution and trial. It's a church that's steadfast under persecution and trial. Verse 4 says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. These Thessalonian believers, they were a persecuted minority. They likely were mainly Gentiles, although there were certainly some Jews. But these Gentiles came out of, of paganism. They came out of cult worship. They, they came out of deification of Roman Empire worship. They were tempted regularly with, with sexual enticement and to turn in the midst of the adversity and to renounce Jesus as Lord and Savior and come back to their old lives and old ways. And brothers and sisters, we may not face those very same temptations, but 
Certainly we can just about turn on the TV or hop on social media for a mere 30 seconds and be bombarded with the pressures and the enticements to come back to sin, to turn away from God and his truth, and to conform to the world. We are called collectively as a church and individually as Christians to renounce the old man and the old woman, to press on in maturity and to remain steadfast and stable, unwavering until Christ comes or until he calls us home. And Paul praises the Thessalonians and praises God ultimately because they are resolute in their faith even in the myths of persecution and trial. As we close today, I, I want to put forth and propose four questions for personal application to you. I want to encourage you to meditate on these. Think about these. Talk with your, your spouse or loved ones about these or your growth group. First question I want to ask as we wrap up our time today is, is have you been birthed in Christ? Just a straightforward question. Have you been birthed in Christ? I'm not asking this morning, are you in church? I'm not asking this morning, have you been baptized? I'm not asking this morning if you've got John 3.16 memorized. I'm not asking this morning if you're spiritual or religious. I'm asking, do you know with certainty that you have been born again by the Holy Spirit of God? And that if the Lord right now called you home and you stood before the living God and were called to give an account of your life, you stand with confidence that you are righteous in the blood of Jesus Christ on that day. And friend in the audience who that may not apply to, I want to just implore you, make that today. You can make that today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. For at just the right time, God hears our cry. Today is that day. Recognize that you are a sinner, alienated from God because of your sin. The wages of sin is death. But God in his mercy, God in his grace has sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come down to this earth to take on man, to live a sinless life, the life that you and I could not. And to offer himself up freely under his own volition as a substitutionary sacrifice for the remission of sins of all who put their faith, hope, and trust in him. And you can turn today away from the world, away from sin, and be set free and saved in Jesus through faith and repentance. Nothing of this world will satisfy. Nothing of this earth will fill the void and emptiness in your life. But Jesus Christ extends his hand today to you, offering forgiveness and salvation. Take his hand today. Call upon his name today. Cry out to him today. Secondly, is there evidence of a growing faith and love in your life and in my life? Is there evidence of a growing faith and love in our lives? Can we look back, and, and though we haven't arrived at perfection, certainly not, we see that indeed God has grown us over the last month or year, decade, whatever it may be. I have greater love and passion to serve the, the brother to my left, the sister to my right, whatever it may be. Is there evidence of that? Thirdly, are you living out authentic familial fellowship? Are you living out authentic familial fellowship? And I want to ask a, a sub-question here, a follow-up question to our members, and perhaps at the risk of stepping on a few toes while I do it. Are you a committed member of a Christian community? And again, this question is not, are you a member of UBC? It presupposes you indeed are. 
Are you a member of a, of a, of a committed Christian community? It could be a growth group, could be a class, could be a Bible study, could be a men's group, a women's group, a youth group, a seniors group, whatever it may be. But are you all in for encouragement and accountability in your life? Or is it simply an hour on a Sunday? And if not, what are you waiting for? And what you're waiting for, I'm going to provide the answer to. What you're waiting for is a crisis of faith in your life. What you're waiting for is a crisis of faith. Then it will be time to get plugged in. Then it will be time to take that next step. And I just want to lovingly say, brother or sister, who that may apply to, don't wait. You wait, it'll be too late. Get plugged in today, now. Get that accountability and encouragement around your life because it's not a matter of if such a crisis or hardship is coming. It's a matter of when. Fourthly and lastly, are we ready for the resistance to be turned up? Are we ready individually and collectively as a church for the resistance to the Christian gospel to be cranked up on high? Are we, are we girding up the mind of our loin, the, the loins of our mind, as the King James says, and, and digging in our heels and saying we're not going to bow to the evil and, and wicked pressures of, a, of an ever-decaying society, but rather we're going to stand firm it just boggles my mind sometimes at the rate of just moral decay, political decay, spiritual decay, cultural decay, social decay. This truly is a lost and dying world. And let us stand firm for the Lord, rooted in his word, rooted in community, and be that light that he's calling us to be. One uh, giant of the faith who did resolve to stand firm, unwavering for the Lord, is the late, great Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, if you're not familiar, was a, a key figure in the First Great Awakening across the 18th century. But when he was 19 years old, he was called to pastor a church in New York City. And before he did, he sat down and he penned 70 resolutions that really became the guiding principles for his life. One of those resolutions is Resolution 54. I want to read it to you. Edwards says, Resolved. Whenever I hear anything spoken in commendation of any person, if I think it would be praiseworthy in me, that I will endeavor to imitate it. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, our text today, we, we saw five characteristics of a scripturally commendable church. We saw that it's a church that's been birthed in God in Christ. We saw that it's a church that lives in God's grace and peace. We saw that it's a church that's growing in faith and increasing in love. And we saw that it's a church that remains steadfast under persecution and trial. And may God grant UBC the strength and resolve to imitate these commendations. Because a church worthy of commendation is a church worthy of imitation. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your love for us and care. Thank you for your son and the salvation he's wrought for us. Lord, thank you that you have, have done the great work that you have here at UBC. And I just pray, Lord, as we move forward, oh God, in time, we don't know when you're coming back, but we do know you are that we would, we would have that resolve, oh God, to stand firm, unwavering until that day or until you take us home. 
And Lord, I thank you so much for the time to be able to open up your word and and be edified and encouraged. And I, I pray that has taken place. Lord, would you bless the remainder of this service, oh God. We thank you, we love you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.